If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we have an interview about Second World War strategy making with historian Simon Parkin. Simon's new book, A Game of Birds and Wolves, The Secret Game That Win the War, tells the remarkable story of how a group of young women used board gaming techniques to alter the course of the Battle of the Atlantic. BBC World History's editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Simon at our History Weekend in Winchester this November, where he was giving a talk to find out more. So people often think of of board games and games more generally as quite a childish thing. Um, But your new book is about the way in which games were used in the Second World War. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So um, war games are a tool that um, have been used for really the last 400 years by professional militaries, governments and uh, politicians, civil servants. And the idea of a war game is really to... I suppose if you're a foot soldier, the way that you practice war is you go and you run around in the field and pretend that your opponent is on the other side. Now, if you're a strategist or a tactician, you can't really do that. You have to find another arena in which to get your practice in. And war games are really the most efficient way in which to do that. Um, so um, essentially, I, I found this story when I was 
talking to the British Army about the sort of war games that they run now and um, uh, finding out the ways in which they have proven useful over the years. And there's a war game analyst called uh, Tom Tom Muat, Major Tom Muat, uh, who works at the Defence Academy in Shrivenham, and he designs war games that help the British government. For example, he designed one that simulated what would happen when President Trump came to visit London, and the idea is that various, you know, the heads of police and sit around and they go through the way in which the British public might react to that and the things that they might not have anticipated had they not played that through. And I said to him, "Have you got an example of where something learned in a war game has proven really useful?" in the real world and uh, he gave me the example of um, Operation Raspberry which is a story from the Second World War that's not very well known uh, about a group that was based in Liverpool uh, that essentially used a board game to revolutionise British anti-U-boat tactics. And was this something that was already well established at the start of the Second World War or was it quite a new thing to do in this conflict? It was new to the Second World War, so war games had been used by the Navy prior to that, uh, and there had been war games in anticipation of the Second World War. Um, uh, some run in the late 1930s to envision uh, you know, what tactics the Germans might use at sea. Um, but uh, certainly this was the, the formation of WATU in the first week of 1942 was the first time that war games had been officially used to examine the U-boat problem and essentially figure out why the U-boats were being so successful in taking down our merchant ships in an effort really to starve Britain by stopping the food and fuel supplies reaching us. You mentioned WATU there. What do we mean when we say that? And who were the key people responsible for setting up this I suppose, slightly unlikely uh, Mm. thing. So WATU is the acronym for the Western Approaches Tactical Unit. This was the unit that was set up by Gilbert Roberts, who was a 41-year-old, retired, in fact, uh, naval commander. He had, in in 1937, been invalided, to use the rather cruel term of the time, out of the Navy after he contracted tuberculosis. And in fact, he thought he might die, but he didn't. He survived. And then for a few years, worked hard to try and fight his way back into the Navy, but they couldn't really find a job for him. And then almost out of the blue, he gets this call in the last week of 1941 saying, come to the Admiralty, which is the Navy's headquarters in London, uh, bring an overnight bag. He turns up and when he arrives, he's let into a secret, which is really something that very few people at the time knew, which was the true extent of uh, merchant shipping losses that we'd we'd undergone. So the the U-boats or the the German naval command had figured out that if they could sink the ships coming over the Atlantic, bringing the vast amount of food that we required to survive, if they could cease that inflow, then um, it would be a very efficient way to bring the war to a close because we'd be unable to continue the war. Um, Churchill had sort of downplayed uh, the statistics here with the British public and he'd overplayed the number of U-boats that we'd been sinking, presumably to sort of maintain morale or something. So anyway, when Roberts is brought into the Admiralty and told the true situation and how close we actually were to starvation, um, he's, he's astonished. And uh, what they say to him is because you've been a very efficient um, tactician in the past for a couple of years, Roberts ran war games prior to the war in Portsmouth as a training method. They said, we want you to go to Liverpool and set up this group, the Western Approaches Tactical Unit or WATU, and figure out what is this tactic that U-boats are using that has been evading us, that's been leading to this huge loss of shipping and life. Uh, We need you to figure it out. We don't care how you do it. We know 
you're good at games, maybe that would be it. And they sort of send him off on the yeah. midnight train. Um, and was he just left to his own devices? Pretty much. So he arrives uh, in Liverpool and he meets with Sir Percy Noble, who was the commander in chief of Western Approaches, who ran um, Derby House. Um, Noble is very dismissive of Roberts when he arrives. Uh, he sort of says, "Well, you can have the top floor of the building, but you know, don't bother me with it. I'm not. I'm not. You know, there's a war going on. Whatever you're doing is, you know, do what you need to do." So, sort of, Roberts is, I guess, a little bit dispirited from that. So he takes over the top floor of Derby House, and he's assigned ten wrens. That's young women of the Royal uh, Women's Royal Naval Service, and. Um, four of whom are Wren officers who have been handpicked because of their aptitude in mathematics and statistics, and then six Wren's ratings. Um, and that is essentially the Watu team, Roberts and these 10 young women. And they get to work um, basically adapting a war game um, in order to restage the battles th that are happening right now out in the Atlantic. And the, the way they do this is they get the after-action reports, they see exactly blow by blow what happened in this battle, and then they recreate it in the game on this on the floor. It's sort of a bit like a gymnasium, uh, you know, with, with lines painted on it, a bit like a chessboard. Each line is um, uh, spaced apart to, I think, represent a distance of 10 nautical miles. Uh, and they recreate the battle the position of the ships, the position of the U-boats, as they were suspected. And from that, they sort of, from this crow's nest perspective, can see what went wrong in the battles and try and figure out where the positions of the U-boats and from there maybe try and expose this tactic that's been evading us. And what sort of sight would have greeted someone if they'd walked into this room um, to see all this happening? Mm -hmm. So I guess a, um, a cross between a gymnasium and a children's nursery. <laughs> so it's a large uh, linoleum floor, a bit like a gymnasium. And then, yes, like I say, these lines painted on it to represent the ocean. And then uh, chalk markings, so the... The manoeuvres of the naval ships were drawn in white chalk and the manoeuvres of the U-boats were drawn in, in green chalk. And then around the, the, the boundary of the game, there were canvas sheets, a bit like voting booths, with sort of eye slits on them. And this is where the team, the t players were divided into two teams, one team playing as the U-boats, the others playing as the Royal Naval Escorts. If you, were play if you were on the team of the Royal Naval Escorts, you stood behind this canvas and you looked through the peephole, which was designed to uh, replicate the visibility that we have uh, you know, on, a, on the bridge of a ship uh, about five miles. Um, and yeah, turns were taken in sort of two minute intervals to give the pressure of playing of, of what a real sea battle is like. And uh, yeah, so a rather curious scene, I think. And what sort of people came to play this game and what did they make of it, I suppose? Well, initially, initially, Robert's goal was to expose this tactic that had been evading us. And it, essentially, this cardinal misunderstanding was we had believed that U-boats were attacking merchant ships from outside the perimeter of a convoy. So merchant ships would sort of travel along a bit like a flock of sheep, so tightly together. And we believe, and the, the naval escorts who were designed to protect them, a bit like sheepdogs protecting a flock of sheep, would sort of encircle them um, looking out for trouble. Now, we had assumed that the U-boats would be firing their um, torpedoes from outside the perimeter. Uh, what it turned out by restaging the game, Roberts figured out that, in fact, what must be happening is the U-boats must be um, making their way at night from the stern of the convoy, slinking in between uh, 
through the, the escort shield and in between the columns of the convoy and firing almost from blank, point blank range. Now, once they figured this out and developed an effective countermeasure, which they did, which was called Raspberry, and this was uh, designed to flush out any U-boats that were sort of acting like a fox in among the hens. Uh, as soon as they'd done this, basically every Royal Naval captain uh, was sent to Watu uh, to basically undergo a week-long training course where they would have the U-boat tactics exposed to them, where they would learn this countermeasure, Raspberry, and then the other operations that the team developed, which were often named after different fruit. And uh, through this week-long course, they would then learn basically much more efficient anti-submarine um, warfare tactics. I should ask, why, why was it called Raspberry in the first place? The, the name Raspberry was given to this manoeuvre by Jean Laidlaw, who was a 21-year-old um, Wren officer who was assigned to Roberts. She was one of the few Wren officers who worked at Watu throughout the entire war from um, 1942 to 45. She was the one who did all of the statistics when coming up with this, and so she was given the honour of naming it. And she said, uh, I want to call it Raspberry because it's like blowing a raspberry at Hitler. Which is an amazing name. Um, what else do we know about the other women who were involved in this? Initially, the the other... So there was Jean Laidlaw, who was the first of the Red Officers. Um, there was also Liz Drake, who was very so short that she had to have a, a stool specially made for her so that she could see through the slits in the, um, in the canvas sheets. Um, there was... Um, there, there were a number of, of women who... Who, who were involved? So there was also June Duncan was one of the um, was one of the uh, um, the ordinary wrens who who worked there. She after the war went on to become a very well known catwalk model, appearing in well to do fashion magazines like Vogue and um, Vanity Fair and the likes of that. Um, there was Janet O'Kell who was a, a young wren who worked her way up the ranks through the years. The, the most of the the wrens were were picked because they had shown some aptitude for for maths or statistical work like I said though so impressed you remember the names of these people I would be terrible <laughs> at that still to come on the history extra podcast I think that the role of Watu the role of the people working from Derby house is equally important is equally notable um, at the end of the war Sir Max Horton wrote a letter to Roberts and to the other wrens saying that your work has contributed in no small measure to the final defeat of Germany we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does or that silly thing you said in a meeting maybe it's time to get it all off your chest whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution that's where therapy comes in it's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Was there a moment, was there a point at which they had to present what they discovered to the rest of the organisation in some way? And what happened when that happened? Yeah, so the night that uh, Roberts and the Wrens had this sort of revelation that the U-boats must be attacking from within the columns of the convoy, um, they sort of worked into the into the night to develop their countermeasure. And then the next morning, Roberts wrote to Sir Percy Noble, Commander-in-Chief of Western Approaches, who had been so sceptical to Roberts when he arrived in Liverpool. And he said, why don't you come up where you think we're on to something? Come up to Watu's office and see what we've done. So the next day, Noble and his staff come up to Watu's office and there's sort of an air of snootiness, I think Roberts recorded in his diary. So very sceptical about what's going on. But then as they play through this one battle and Robert starts to explain he was a very good communicator, very, very talented in sort of bringing the battle to life, he starts to explain um, what he saw as the cardinal misunderstanding that we'd had and exposes the U-boat tactic as he saw it. And uh, he describes Percy Noble sitting forward in his chair, his demeanour changing from one of scepticism to one of sort of excitement and um, respect. And afterwards... Noble stands to his feet and says congratulations and, and then asks, what, what's this going to be called, this, this manoeuvre? And uh, that's when Laidlaw explains it's going to be a raspberry. And almost immediately, uh, the, the raspberry manoeuvre was added to the set of instructions that was sent out um, to everyone who was sailing the Atlantic. Did it make an immediate impact? Had an immediate impact, yes. So the number of U-boats that were sunk in the summer of 1942 um, increased and that caused a, an increased trend throughout the remainder of the year. In fact, all the way through to the summer of 1943, which is when the U-boats were decisively driven from the Atlantic following the Battle of ONS-5. And did the fact it had had this impact change how people viewed the importance of this kind of war gaming to the outcome of the war? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I think certainly um, at the time, Roberts and the Wren's work was highly esteemed. So he was awarded the CBE in January 1944. And um, I think because the U-boats had been driven from the Atlantic, the powers that be decided, this is something we're going to talk about publicly. So there were a number of journalists who were allowed to go and write about Watu. There was a fantastic article in Illustrated magazine with fantastic photographs and a full description of it all. And I think for a while, it was Watu's work was fated and it, people understood the significance. But after the war, I think there was very quickly, there was the an image established probably by books and movies of the public 
image of what heroism in the Second World War looked like was really sort of spitfires cresting a hill, um, people escaping from prisoners of war camps, basically live action. And the sort of image of this remote tactical work, people kneeling on the floor, you know, measuring things with uh, bits of chalk and string probably didn't chime with that imagery. So for for one reason or another, uh, Watu was, was sort of forgotten, faded from the popular historiography of the Second World War. And um, yeah, it's only really in recent years that it's been sort of rediscovered and uh, people have become interested in it again. How did you find out more information about what happened in this story? Mm -hmm. Well, I was working on a radio documentary for The New Yorker about wargaming, contemporary wargaming. And um, it was during the course of of making that programme that um, Major Tom Muat, who who is a a wargame designer for the the British Army, mentioned Raspberry. Um, There was a book, uh, a biography written about um, Captain Roberts in the 1970s, which, uh, which you know, people who know a lot about the Battle of the Atlantic and the Battle of the Atlantic is, I would say, one of the the less popular fronts that people are interested in in the Second World War. So that 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 was noted, and I think in history books um, there has been certainly mention of Roberts and Watu. Um, but this is this book is really, I would say, the first sort of book length study of it. Um, there's a group of war gamers at uh, DSTL, which is the uh, a group of wargaming um, analysts and professionals, and th- they were the ones who sort of uh, picked up on on this. Paul Strong, who who is a wargame analyst there, um, wrote an article about it, um, which I think is what made it uh, brought it to Major Tom Muat's attention, and then he passed it on to me. So, did Watu go on coming up with new kind of um, techniques? after they made this breakthrough? Yes, yeah, so it, they didn't stop with raspberry, so there was also uh, pineapple, artichoke, half raspberry. Um, there were numerous tactics that were, I mean, initially raspberry was there for when a merchant ship went up in flames, it was what do you, what do we all do, the escort ships? What pattern do we move in? Where do we drop our depth charges? So they then started developing countermeasures that were designed um, in anticipation of a U-boat attack as well as in the aftermath. Mm. And they all proved successful to some extent, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. definitely, definitely yeah. so. Um, how would you like this operation to be remembered um, in the context of the war compared to, say, some other more famous things, such as the Enigma machine? Do you think it's as important as, as those? Well, I, I mean, I think it's very difficult to um, put your finger on one particular, um, one particular piece of the jigsaw that went into um, the success of the Allies in the Second World War. And, um, you know, Bletchley Park in recent years has... And, Enigma has obviously been um, something that's been a focus on. I think that the role of Watu, the role of the people working from Derby House, is equally important, is equally notable. Um, At the end of the war, um, Sir Max Horton, who was at the time Commander-in-Chief of uh, Western Approaches, wrote a letter to Roberts and to the other Wrens saying that your work has contributed in no small measure to the final defeat of Germany. So this is, I, I would say, not sort of a contemporary um, overstatement of the the importance of the role that Watu played. You know, even contemporaneously, people acknowledge that Watu's work was hugely important. And I think it's important for us now to acknowledge that and um, you know, refocus on it and draw out details that perhaps might otherwise have been lost to history. Is there anything that we still don't know? If you could travel back and ask someone a question, what might you ask? One of the difficulties in writing the book 
is finding first-hand accounts from the women who were involved. So I think after the war, <clears throat> if you were a fairly senior naval officer, who was not too difficult for you to get special dispensation to be able to write your memoirs to tell everyone about the amazing things you did in the war. Um, and lots of men got to do that. If you were a sort of 23-year-old young woman who had worked at Watu for, for three or four years, um, it was that was a secret you were going to have to keep for 50 years. Um, and most of them did. And um, one of one of the Wrens who was involved was still alive when I started work on the book, and I got to talk um, to her and her family. Um, but I think a lot of the other Wrens either did not write down their stories, or in the case of Jean Laidlaw, she did write down her story, and then her family, when she died, just um, one reason or another, it got lost in her possessions, and so her story never got to be told. So... That is one thing I would like to go back and be able to interview each of them. Yeah. Was this technique copied elsewhere by the Allies in the war or later? Yes. So Watu inspired a number of satellite units across the empire um, in various various far-flung places. Um, less is known about those operations, um, but I think we do know that there were at least six of them. The last remaining report in the National Archives is the annual report um, uh, from 1944, which lists the numbers of people who had been through, number of officers who had trained there, and it gives some details about these satellite units as well. So we know that yeah, it was certainly influential in that in that regard. Finally, your own story is being adapted for a film, I believe. Um, what's that like? Uh, it's it's strange. That so the book has been optioned, and what that means is that a film production company has said. Uh, we would like to have dibs on this for 18 months. <laughs> and during that time, we will decide whether we actually want to pay the uh, whatever money it takes to make a movie to, to actually develop this. So it's still very much at the first hurdle. Um, hopefully it goes further. We'll see. Um, it is strange. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer. That's my, my passion. So I, I would like there to be a film because hopefully it will encourage people to read the book. That was Simon Parkin. Simon's book, A Game of Birds and Wolves, The Secret Game That Won the War, is available now, published by Scepter. Simon's also written a feature about this story in issue 20 of BBC World Histories magazine, which goes on sale on the 2nd of January 2020. If you'd like to join us at our next events, we've got two days of talks on medieval life and death coming up in London and York in March and May 2020. You can find out more about that at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Thursday when Sarah Cockrell will be speaking to Dan Jones about Eleanor of Aquitaine. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.